Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. The passage we're going to look at is in the worship folder on the the outline. Um, You know, I've had a number of people that have come up to me in the last few weeks, it seems like, and I've heard, overheard people say that they feel really stressed out. And um, you won't be surprised to know then that most psychologists say that Christmas is the most stressful holiday of the year. Um, Maybe that's why you feel a little bit tired. I don't know. So it's kind of crazy, though, you think about it, what we do to ourselves. Uh, 80% of the parties we attend throughout the year uh, happen in the three-week period around Christmas. And then we decide to redecorate our house inside and outside. Um, We buy gifts for just about everyone we know, and we send Christmas cards to everyone we've met. We make dozens of cookies and other unhealthy snacks, and um, uh, maybe the stress helps us burn off our calories. Maybe not, I don't know. But on top of that, we consume about three times our normal carb count, so we're either groggy or moody and hyper. And uh, just to make it a little more interesting, let's let all the kids out of school. Um, So this may be the first time you've slowed down for a while. Um, So uh, if you feel exhausted uh, this afternoon, maybe this is an opportunity for all of us to slow down, take a deep breath, open God's word, and focus on what Christmas is all about and have God speak to each of us. Uh, There's a documentary that was uh, on air a couple of years ago called The Search for Jesus. And in the opening scene, the narrator begins reading the Christmas story out of Luke. Uh, and it gets, it's against the backdrop of a Middle Eastern man who's carving the face of Jesus into a block of wood. And the narrator says this, he says, hello, we've been searching for Jesus, as reporters, that is, because it's an irresistible story. And whatever your faith or religion, there's simply no denying the extraordinary influence that Jesus has had and that he does have in people's lives. He has in our lives. So I want to read um, from Matthew chapter 2, and again, you've got it on your outline or follow along in your Bibles. So starting at verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So this is God's word. So why does Matthew give us all these details? Well, I think there are some 
important truths for us to learn from these verses. And the first truth is that like King Herod, we are all naturally God's enemies. Verse one talks about the wise men coming before King Herod. And verse two, in verse two they ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now when you come into someone's palace and say, where is the king? That is at least going to agitate, if not really upset, the person who is currently on the throne. Verse three says that Herod was disturbed. Uh, The reality is that he must have been livid. Uh, I think that's one of the great, greatest understatements in the Bible. Uh, History tells us that Herod was an extremely violent person. Uh, Even considering violence was more or less a part of the culture. He he killed many members of his family, uh, of his official court, just to make sure that his authority wouldn't be challenged. Matthew tells us that when Herod realized that the wise men weren't coming back to tell him where Jesus was, this is in verse 16, if you have your Bible and want to look ahead there, he had all the children under two years of age in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas killed to be sure to eliminate any would-be ruler. So I, I know I don't like to necessarily think about this, but Herod's response to the birth of Christ is really a picture of my heart and yours. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne in our lives. And Jesus makes that claim over our lives. But this inevitably triggers deep resistance within us. In Romans chapter eight, verse seven, it says that at the core of who we are, we are always hostile to God. That's who we are in our nature. At the center of our lives is this impulse that says no one tells me what to do. Our culture teaches us to, to hide it, but, but basically each one of us wants the world to, re- to revolve around us and our needs and our desires. We don't wanna serve God, we don't wanna serve our neighbor, we want them to serve us. In our hearts, there, and this is on your outline if you're taking notes, in our hearts there's a little King Herod in all of us who wants to rule and who is threatened by anything that may compromise our own omnipotence and our own sovereignty over our lives. We want to be our own absolute king. We want to create a God of our liking. And we want to mask our hostility toward the real God who reveals himself as our absolute king. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, the apostle Paul writes, what I hate, I do in my flesh, he's talking about. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of a believer, uh, the flesh continues to serve sin. There's this internal struggle. Our spirit uh, wants to seek after righteousness. And so Jesus said it this way, the spirit is, the flesh is weak, but uh, the, the flesh is, is indeed weak, but the spirit is, our spirit is strong within us. Uh, that's our natural nature. Is, is that something that you recognize in your own life? Uh, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all struggle with that. 
A second truth that Matthew wants us to see is that the wisdom of this world can tell us about our problems, but never about the solution. Because ultimately, the the solution is a spiritual one, and the world doesn't get that. So here's a question. How do the wise men know Jesus' location? Well, verse 1 talks about the wise men from the east who come to Jerusalem while Jesus is still an infant in in Bethlehem. And we know that many of the intellectuals of that day were astrologers. Uh, At the time of Jesus' birth, there was indeed something miraculous that happened in the skies. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it says in verse 1, the wise men saw it and they came to Jerusalem. Notice they didn't go to Bethlehem. They went to Jerusalem. So what led them to Jerusalem? From Jerusalem to, what led them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Well, it's not the star. It's the scriptures. It's God's word. The star appears and they think <clears throat> maybe a great ruler is supposed to be born in Judea. And they go, to, they go to the biggest city. They go to Jerusalem. They don't follow the star to Bethlehem. In the end, stars can't take you anywhere. The wise men go to Jerusalem and they ask where to go from there. In verse three, it says, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law point them to where? To the word of God. They point them to the prophet Micah. Look at verse six, quoting Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so you have this again on your outline. Worldly wisdom told them they needed a king. But the world's wisdom couldn't tell them how to find the king. So what did they do? They went to the word of God. They had to go to the word of God. It had to be revealed to them from scripture. You know, all kinds of secular studies have been done that tell us our problems. Our problem, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with our relationship with other people? What's wrong with the world? But the secular studies can't teach us how to pray. They can't teach us how to offer forgiveness to other people, how to receive forgiveness. Uh, They can't teach us that. And so the wisdom of the world is inadequate. It's obvious that we have big problems, that we need help. Just look at the news. But there must be faith. That's how we respond to God. God speaks to us through his word, And his primary message from the word is what we've been singing about tonight. That God has come to us in his son to save us from our sins. And so how does faith grow? Faith grows by the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says it. You've got it on the outline. Now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so people will come to me and they'll say, you know, I don't feel close to God. I feel like he's really distant. And if you feel that God is distant for you, open the Bible. Open God's word and read God's word. That is how God speaks to us, through his word. Uh, And we speak to God through prayer, so you can pray back to him the words that you're reading in God's word. And then a third truth that Matthew points us to, number three on your outline, is that Jesus shows us the superficiality of what the world offers. Mary and Joseph aren't sent to the city uh, for Jesus to be born with all the sounds and smells of, that are associated with the city. 
but they're sent to a stable with all the sounds and, and yes, the smells that are there. And having grown up in Kansas and worked on a farm and worked in barns, I can tell you the smell is not very nice. Uh, but Jesus could care less about creature comforts. Even the location of his birth points to his humility. And who comes to Jesus' first birthday celebration? Well, we know the wise men are there, the magi. And we read in Luke 2 that the shepherds were there as well. As far as the Jewish nation was concerned, all the wrong people were at Jesus' first birthday. Um, they were, the shepherds were social outcasts. They were the social outcasts of the day. Uh, the wise men were Gentiles who didn't understand anything about God and his word. None of the people of influence were there. Think of what the world values. The world values beauty. The world values influence. The world values money. And think of Jesus. Basically, he did everything wrong according to the world's rules and everything right according to God. What Christmas challenges us to, and again on your outline, is to look at the superficiality, the utter superficiality of everything the world offers. Uh, one consultant to high-level executives said this, achievement is the alcohol of our time. It's like an addiction. The more you achieve, the more you feel power, and the more you want. Jesus was the opposite of that. Everything about his birth and life points to the triteness of the world and everything that the world has to offer. Listen to what Jesus did from one paraphrase of Philippians chapter two. He says this, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So Jesus came as a humble, poor servant on your outline and he offers his kingdom to those who have faith in him. Not to those who do all kinds of good deeds and try to earn their salvation that way. So do you understand that? Do you understand that the world gives you what the world gives you is just fleeting at best? And Jesus gives us something that lasts for eternity. And then a fourth truth that Matthew wants us to see in these verses is that the wisdom of the world is narrow and exclusive, whereas the gospel is for everyone. You know, I think it's interesting that Matthew emphasizes that the first ones to come to Bethlehem to worship Jesus are the foreigners from the east. There's a lot we don't know about these wise men who came, but one thing we do know is that according to the Jewish faith, they were unclean Gentiles. That's how Matthew begins his gospel, with these Gentiles coming and being accepted, coming to, and celebrating Jesus. And then how does the gospel of Matthew end? The final words of Jesus are this, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. 
And so even though Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, at the beginning and at the end of his gospel, he is telling us that the Messiah is for all the nations. It's for all the people, not just for the Jews. And that's us. That's what we can rejoice in this Christmas is that, 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 that the Messiah came for us as well. One of the prophecies of Isaiah is in Isaiah chapter 60, and it says, the nations will come to your light and, the, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. One of the things that the people object to about Christianity is they say it's too narrow, it's too exclusive. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That is narrow, that's exclusive. That's what Jesus said. So how is the wisdom of the world narrow and Christianity open to anyone? Well, the wisdom of the world looks down its nose at those who are uncultured, at those who are failures and says, the likes of you will never go to heaven. You don't deserve heaven. Trust me, none of us deserve heaven. But the gospel comes to anyone who has lost hope, this is on your outline, and says there is hope in the message of Christmas. And so, is Jesus your hope? If he is, praise him. If he is not your hope, then I would, I would plead with you to turn to Jesus today, this Christmas, and find hope in him. If you've lost hope, then look to Jesus. The wise of the world don't believe that anybody can be saved. They just believe that if you're moral enough, you can be saved. If you're decent enough, then you can go to heaven. Uh, they will say, but there's some people that are beyond saving. A murderer is beyond saving. But what the Bible teaches is that there is hope for everyone, that grace is always greater than our sin. The gospel says that anyone, regardless of your past, who trusts completely in Jesus for their salvation can have it based on God's promises. And that means regardless of your past, regardless of how moral or immoral you've been in the past, regardless of how cultured you are, whatever it is, it is for everyone. Christmas means that the king has come into the world. And one of the promises of the Bible is that Jesus is coming back. Uh, we don't know when he's coming back. He can come back whenever he wants to. He is God. But he is coming back, and he's coming back the second time as one who will com it was coming back with power. And he's coming back to end all evil and all suffering and all death. So the first time he came in weakness as a baby, but the second time he is coming in absolute power. So God doesn't care who you are. He loves you. He doesn't care what you've done in your past. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've got deep, dark secrets that no one else knows about. I don't care how badly you've messed up. If you come to God through Jesus, not only will he accept you, but he will work in your life to make you like his son. That's his goal for us. And he's still doing that today. It, you know, the Bible really is just a book of failures that God has turned into his successes. It's simple, but it's costly. There's nothing easy about the gospel or free about it. It was very costly. The cross was heavy. The blood that Jesus shed was real. And the price was extravagant. 
You can call it simple, you can call it a gift, but don't call it easy. Actor uh, Kevin Bacon tells about the first time his six-year-old son started watching some of the movies that he made. And he would see an amazing stunt and his son would, would ask him how he did it and Kevin would reply, well, I didn't do that part. It was a man who dresses like me and does the things I can't really do. He's called a stuntman. And his son seemed a little confused and realized that his dad didn't do the coolest parts of the movies that he was watching. And so he said, so dad, what do you do? And Kevin said he replied rather sheepishly, son, I get all the glory. And that's the grace of God in our lives. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we stand forgiven and we bask sheepishly and triumphantly in what Jesus did for us in his glory. You know, God is reaching out to you this afternoon with the gift of his grace. And so the question for each of you to ask is, have I genuinely received Christ into my life? If you have, then praise him. And if you haven't, then the Bible says, but as many as did receive him and welcome him, he gave the power and the privilege and the right to become the children of God to those who trust in and rely on his name. So you are not to receive him as someone you don't care about, but you're to receive him as you would receive your dearest and most honored friend a friend you love and, and have reverence for and with all the power that you, you can. And so you receive Jesus as the wonderful counselor. You receive him as the mighty God, as the everlasting father and as the prince of peace. He has come to you today. Will you receive him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today remembering how you have shown us that the wisdom of the world is foolishness. You've shown us that the many things that seem to be wise and enlightened are just turned upside down by the gospel. Help us all to realize how easy it is to fall back into the wisdom of the world and to only do the things that we think have, that we'll have the resources to do ourselves. If there's anyone here who's given up hope or feels hopeless or is in despair, Lord, I, or searching for something, it's just, Lord, that they would know that they can never find that apart from you. I pray that they would find that in you today, Lord. We love you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, I have a friend of mine who was on my ordination committee, actually, who wrote something that I want to share with you as the benediction. He writes this, praise God for Christmas. Praise him for the incarnation, for word made flesh. I will not sing of shepherds watching flocks or frosty night or angel choristers. I will not sing of stable bear in Bethlehem or lowing oxen, wise men trailing distant star with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Tonight I will sing, as we have been singing, praise to the Father who stood on heaven's threshold 
and said farewell to his son as he stepped across the stars to Bethlehem in Jerusalem. And I will sing praise to the infinite eternal son who became most holy, finite, a baby, who would one day be executed for my crimes. Praise him in the heavens. Praise him in the stable. Praise him in my heart. Amen. Merry Christmas.